Thank you for joining the ISACA podcast. I'm Lisa Villanueva, IT Governance Professional Practices at ISACA, and I'm a principal there. Joining me today is a very special guest. He is founder of DEGI Incorporated, Guy Pierce. He's here to share with us his recently released ISACA Journal article entitled, Beware the Traps of Data Governance and Data Management Practice. Guy, thank you for joining me today. Hello, Lisa. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for the invitation. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, great. Well, Guy, for those who may not be aware of you and the good work that you've done and all the other podcasts that you've been so kind to do with us, could you give us a little introduction about yourself? Um, yeah, sure. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, if you had to go back, I think um, the foundation of my career really was in computer science. Um, over the years, I've moved along into more of the business, uh, you know, the business side of things. I've been involved not only from a computing perspective, but I've also taken on roles um, as significant as being the CEO of a, a multinational financial services business. I've served on multiple boards of directors, which has given me some really good insights between those two sort of pillars of not only what it takes to run a business or what it takes to enable a business, but also what it takes to perform the governance and ensure that things are being done in, in the best interest of the organization stakeholders or as uh, maybe more traditionally in the best interests of the organization. These days, um, I you know, spend quite a lot of my time more on the digital side specifically. And in that respect, it's on data and it's on digital transformation. And I guess that's how we landed here with, uh, yeah, beware the traps of data governance and um, looking forward to, to this conversation. Right. Well, thank you, Guy. Thanks for that introduction. So let's go straight into it. One of the things that I found quite compelling about your article is this concept of law in the context of data. And I wonder if you could just elaborate on that. What is law and why do you believe that in the context of unknowns, law is king? Thank you, Lisa. And in fact, that brings me to why I wrote the article in the first place. Uh, it really started with, you know, there's so much focus these days on data-driven decision-making. And if you're not careful, you may think, well, that's the only form of decision making that is possible or that really happens out there. And uh, I felt, yeah, hang on, you know, I need to just bring the other side of the picture back, uh, you know, into the equation. You know, what are the kinds of things that uh, decision makers needed to do before this big data driven decision making focus? And before that, you had things like experience, you had things like gut feel, you had things like intuition. And these are the things that, uh, um, you know, that helped decision making. And one of the points that I really did want to make, having written the article, is it's not only about data driven decision making. However, if there is no data, and this is where it gets interesting, because there's not always data available for decision making, what else have you got to lean back on when it comes to decision making? And that's certainly going to be your gut feel and your experience and your intuition. And in that respect, in the absence of data or the data is weak or the data is unusable for whatever reason, law is most certainly king. You will still fall back on your experience and on, and on your intuition. 
Absolutely. That's such an excellent, uh, compelling way to look at it, that uh, that tribal knowledge and that intuition in particular and how powerful they can be combined. Uh, but talk to us a little bit about what is hard data's relationship to, to law? Right. Um, yeah. And in fact, they're not different. In fact, if you had to think about it that way, they're two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, if you talk about the organization's data, that is very specific data, and it's a subset really of all of the data that eventually gets transformed in, into information about the situation at hand. Whereas, as I said, law is much bigger. It extends beyond the organization. You know, any person's experience is going to certainly be beyond just that organization. There's going to be personal experiences. There's going to be experiences in other enterprises. But really, all it all comes down to is it's different types of data and different types of information that come together into the single coin that helps organizations or enables organizations to make decisions. Now, Guy, could you tell us whether there are any shortcomings with each of those types, whether it be law or hard data? For sure. And in fact, you know, some people, well, I have some seen some articles and some comments that data is objective. There's not a chance. Every single piece of data has bias because some human pulled it together, some human created the analytical engine to produce an outcome, some human made an interpretation, an interpretation was made from a frame of reference. And in the same way, law, your experiences and your intuition come through your lens of the world, your particular view of things. Uh, so I would argue that both data and law, if you want to put it that way, are both, both suffer the shortcoming of bias. Uh, there is no such thing as, or probably, uh, let me rather say, there's probably not anything such that, uh, you know, there is no bias in data. Both of them have the shortcoming, whether it's your operational data you collect within your organization or whether it's your own experiences. Everything comes through a lens, whether it's your lens or whether it's a group of humans, you know, pulling data together and analyzing it. Biggest single shortcoming is that bias. So I would think that with that bias, it could really impact decision-making confidence. Would you agree? Well, that is a fabulous context. <laughs> that's a that's a brilliant uh, that's a brilliant observation, Lisa. Um, it's most certainly does. So, when you're starting to think strategically and you're starting to think about how do I use data to to enable the strategy of the organization, one of the things you've got to bear in mind is what are the circumstances under which the data was collected that I'm now looking at and analyzing in order to figure out what I do tomorrow or the next month or the next year. Are there any constraints? Some of them could be biases, certainly, that constrain me from having or believing that I have the information of sufficient quality or of sufficient span to be able to make the right kinds of decisions. So most certainly, that is a, that's an excellent point, Lisa, is once you realize that you know, not all data is, is or, or data is not necessarily objective or probably not at all objective. Suddenly you start looking at data-driven decision-making in a totally different light, whether it's a short-term, whether it's a tactical decision, operational decision, or, uh, you know, where the impact would probably be a lot heavier on that strategic decision-making. Excellent. Thank you so much. Another question for you. 
Could you provide some examples of circumstances in which decisions could be made in the absence of law and data? Right, yes. So this is uh, really quite hard. The general example I like to use is a business process which you are compelled to follow. So those would typically fall either in HR or finance where there's a business process that's defined. You follow the process step by step. You do not deviate because if you are, you're going to be hauled over the coals for some reason. So in that instance, no thinking is required with respect to what are the decision making I need to do on the steps, uh, you know, for each of the steps in that. Sorry, it's not a process. It's a procedure at that level. I, you know, the, there is no, oh, hang on, I need to go and analyze something or gosh, what's my experience in this case? It's nothing like that. It's I follow this thing step by step to the end. It's clear. It's given. No thinking or analysis is provided. Another example is, for example, in company policy and, you know, particular organization in uh, in terms of its digital transformation might argue that from now on, everything we do is cloud first. And you think, OK, that means that I don't need to think, oh, what are the differences between if I do this solutioning on premise or whether I do it in cloud? You've received the directive. It's a policy decision. You would argue, yep, I'm going to follow policy and the directive is clear. It's cloud first. I don't need to think about it. I'm not don't need to depend on my experience. I don't need to analyze anything. So certainly there are a couple of cases where neither law nor data is required. And it's usually in the case where you've got your organizational policies, processes or procedures, standards, even guidelines. You may certainly still have some law or experience that come to bear than whether a guideline would be followed. But in terms of those upper three governance constructs, generally speaking, yeah, you don't generally need a lot of data or probably not any data nor law to actually fulfill those requirements. Okay, great. Well, pivoting back to that concept of decision making, what does the combination of well-governed data and law enable in terms of the highest quality of decision making? So, yeah, as soon as you recognize that data and law are both forms of data, then your next thing is to realize, okay, what is the source of law? And yeah, it's my experience, it's intuition, it's observation, it's something I see, it's something I make conclusions on through my lens. This is data from the operation, very well-defined business processes. There's outcomes, I'm collecting data, sometimes it's not such great quality, so maybe I've got to clean some of that data beforehand. But when I bring both of these together, and again, this is why I wrote the articles, it's not only about this data-driven decision-making. When I bring both of these together, I've got the strength not only of, shall we call it the organizational uh, 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 knowledge in terms of the data it's captured within its transactional systems and such like, but I've also got your, you know, one also has their own experiences to apply and to think, gosh, this is what the data is saying. But if I bring my experience to bear, well, under these circumstances, that decision is probably not entirely the right one to make. And as a result, you, you are in a position where maybe you start questioning the data, which is always good, having that critical mindset. And this is where the two come together, where as a pair, they are a lot more powerful than either one. The whole gut feel decision making, which, yeah, it could be old, you know, it could be jaded and all the rest of it versus just the data driven decision making. Bringing them two together, they complement each other. It enables you to apply critical thinking to just having that whole data-driven decision-making engine. That is really what it's about. That is what the combination 
of data and law make for decision-making within an organization. Right, thank you. That makes sense as it relates to well-governed data. And as we think a little bit about data governance, you know, sometimes it's interesting to kind of look into like, you know, what is it or how does good data governance influence an organization's data culture and data management activities? Can you speak about data governance and data management and how that impacts the data culture? Yeah, uh, yes, for sure. And uh, I think it might uh, it might be useful just to give a, a short uh, definition of culture. And in this case, really, what you're speaking about is, are the norms and behaviors within an organization, how business is done, how things are done within a particular organization. And one of the most important drivers of a culture or enablers of a culture is the process of developing a shared understanding of the importance of data for meeting the organization's strategic objectives. So the reason why this comes up is for those in the industry or associated with data or helping organizations become more data illiterate, a lot of it is about educating stakeholders about, well, how data can be used, why it's important, uh, some of the things to watch out for. And that shared understanding of, oh gosh, yes, we've got our experiences. Remember that whole law side. But if we look at our own data, you know, that might reflect business as it was performed over the last year or maybe two years or maybe even six months, you can then bring these things together and realize, wow, this is what the power of data is. So folks start behaving differently. They start saying, wow, I always want to look at this report before I make this kind of an operational decision. And by means of that, that education and that, that influence, the business starts changing from, oh, I only make gut feel decisions. I don't need any data to, gosh, that stuff is interesting. The market is so dynamic, you know, and it changes so quickly. Maybe it does help me just to reflect on some of the things that have happened in the business over the last couple of weeks, months, or maybe maybe a year or so, probably not that much longer if you're talking about the rate things change. But that's certainly one of the biggest things is that shared understanding. But more than that, I think one of the biggest cultural issues when it comes to data is that data is power. And you will find in any organization that some stakeholders prefer to keep their data to themselves. And, you know, much to the frustration of other parts of the organization who would love to have access to that data for, you know, for various projects or decision making. And one of the biggest cultural changes and probably one of the toughest ones is trying to convince certain stakeholders within the organization is that Data is a shared benefit to the organization. You'll hear some folks say, speaking of data as an asset. Yeah, it's used commonly. I don't really like the term. Um, and, you know, and one of them is, you know, it's not really the organization's asset. The data really belongs to the customer or the client or such like. So you know, mentally, I've got a little bit of, a, of an issue just calling it just, just an asset for asset's sake, because asset new, normally comes with the word exploitation. But that data is a shared benefit. It's not merely something siloed. It's not the domain of this person or that person combined. The whole process of breaking down silos and making the organization feel a common sense of certainly the power of data and also recognizing that the benefit of the data within the organization is of a shared benefit. There's another one which is always tricky in this respect, and that is just a shared understanding 
of what people mean when they talk about data or within when they talk about different types of data within the organization that whole yeah what is the business glossary and uh, you know what do we mean when we say this or what does this data element mean these things are important behavioral constructs too because if everyone's speaking a totally different language and using different words to describe business activities or the things business deals with or even data objects themselves it's bound to result in confusion and folks not really and you know misunderstanding and everyone you know, decide well i don't know what he's talking about is he talking about this or is he talking about that so certainly one of the biggest cultural matters is also helping to establish a shared understanding of certainly the business not only the business and the business language but also of the data that helps enable that business achieve its objectives excellent excellent so with that data culture there are some good benefits that you spoke about with regard to data governance for sure about uh let's say what shared a shared benefit and a shared understanding were a couple of examples and i'm wondering if there's any benefits at the individual level specifically as it relates to data management can you talk to us a little bit about any benefits at the individual level versus organizational so this is a great question and in the article, I positioned the whole matter of creating the business case for data governance or data management. And usually when one creates a business case, it's at the enterprise level. Here are the benefits for the business. But when you try to change hearts and minds, that level of business case is not going to cut it. When it comes down to, yeah, but what does all of that stuff mean for Guy? Or what does it mean for Susan or whoever, or for Lisa for that matter? You know, what does it mean? You know, that's not going to sell it. It's not going to make someone feel, yes, I'm going to buy into this journey because I can see these beautiful enterprise benefits. So the kinds of things that you've really got to do as part of changing that culture and as part of selling data governance and, and, and data management into the organization is what's in it for the individual. So, for example, for those employees or those uh, you know members of the team that are data facing, that use data facing in their day-to-day -day business to create reports or to produce analytics or even to make decisions from, one of the big things is that data management and data governance is going to reduce the time it takes for those individuals to create those reports, well, to gather the data, to process the data, to correct the data, to present it in a form that's usable to the end user. And that is one of the biggest benefits. In other words, that person is now no longer spending up to 80% of their time, incidentally, doing data wrangling or preparing data or cleaning. More of that user's attention can be on the high value, high profile kind of things that, that is, you know, really that all of that data cleansing and data wrangling is a thankless task. But you're now, as a result of your investments in data governance and data management, able to spend more time producing the high value outcomes. And when it comes to producing the high value outcomes, one of the key things to ask each individual and to find out you know, what's in it for them and how you structure this conversation for them in particular is what kinds of things are you as an individual struggling with from a data or information perspective that if data governance and data management could solve them for you, it would help you achieve your own objectives. And that's always an interesting conversation because everyone's got objectives. They're trying to achieve something. They want to be sure they qualify for their bonus at the end of the year or whatever it might be, or some other incentive. It's a key question to ask is what does this do for you? And certainly one of the biggest benefits for most individuals, at least at the data processing level is 
minimizing data wrangling, minimizing having to clean the data, minimizing having to organize the data in a way that makes sense in a report or for a piece of analytics. And those are potentially huge benefits because then that person is now focusing on the real value contributions of their role rather than this preparation stuff, which, as I said, is from all intents and purposes, a pretty thankless task. Absolutely. And it sounds like those objectives could really also be goals uh, of a good data governance program. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us some additional examples, perhaps some sub goals of data governance programs that help achieve the overarching goals uh, to eliminate blind trust uh, and misinterpretation of data. Uh, right. Yes. And that whole blind trust on the one hand and misinterpretation on the other, those were two of the big issues that come across in organizations, you know, struggling to get to grips with their data environment. And certainly some examples of helping to resolve blind trust. I think about it. Lisa, you're a manager in a big organization and you're looking for a report on XYZ and I give you this report. Your first thing, or maybe a couple of years ago, would be, yep, I'm going to make decisions. This is the information I need. I'm going to make a decision straight off this report. That's blind trust. But bringing back law and your experience and your judgment, and interpret, you might look and say, where did this data come from? How old is this data? How do I know that the data has been processed in such a way and all of these calculations on this report? How do I know these are valid? And that's one part, one really big part of it is how data governance as a discipline really starts to provide quality scores around, for example, the data that was used in the report. So I can see, oh, yeah, it looks like all of the data that was used in this report is above 60% in various dimensions of quality on the one hand. On the other hand, another question would be from your side, Lisa, is you might say, how do I know this is an accurate reflection of what came out of the production systems? So another view that you could have is, okay, where did the data come from? Yes, it comes from this system. It's a production system, this one and this one. Fabulous. So the quality is right. I know where it comes from. I'm now longer, no longer just looking at this report with blind trust, or rather you no longer looking at this report with blind trust. You've now got confidence that, yes, the information is of a quality I can use to make a decision. I know where the data comes from. I understand the calculations. There's an attestation score on this that says, You've got, you know, this report is 70% good for decision making. That removes blind trust completely, having those kind of metrics based on that report that you're viewing. On the misinterpretation side, so, yeah, when we were talking about data culture, we were talking about a common language, a common understanding, not only of business terms used in the organization, but also of the data elements themselves. And one of those things are, and maybe this is a little bit of jargon, but a business glossary, where a glossary is just like a dictionary. It's a, this is a term, what does it mean? This is a term, what does it mean? In some cases, that glossary may highlight synonyms where an organization is okay with the fact that some things may have two words or phrases describing them, but at least you've got a central point where you can go and say, well, what, is they, what do they mean when they say that? Here it is. This is published. It's an approved business glossary. There is no confusion. I know exactly what they're talking about now. There's also, in a similar sense, there's your data dictionary. And your data dictionary is a description of what individual data elements mean. So sometimes in the data world, you've got, at least in 
shall we call them uh, relational databases, which are what 50 odd years old. So it's a 50 year old technology, but you've got a column name and that column name could be quite cryptic all by itself. So you're not really sure what's in that column. But if I've got a data dictionary, I can go and have a look and say, ah, this data element, oh, this is the meaning. Oh, it's an approved definition. Okay, that's clear. I understand what it is. I can also see who the owner of the data is. So if I've got any questions about what this data is, I can go and ask the data owner, which is basically, shall we call it the, the overall steward, if you want, of the data, the person who decides what happens to data, whether it's cleaned, how it's used, what reports it may appear in, all in the interest of ensuring that that data is fit for purpose within which the various aspects it is used. So blind trust, yep, you just want that score to know that my report is of a quality I can make decisions on. And removing misinterpretation is through constructs, and they're basically metadata constructs such as your business glossary or your data dictionary or even understanding the relationship between different data across domains within the organization. Oh, that's excellent, excellent. It really gets me to thinking of a few things. You talked about trust and really quality being a key uh, to that measure and, and trying to avoid misinterpretation, having data stewards, uh, ensuring that we have um, glossaries and data dictionaries. Those all really, in my mind, they start speaking to the level of data maturity. And I, I wonder sometimes about how automation may help us with that, and perhaps also what are some of the major challenges with the automation of data as it relates to governance. Can you speak on that a bit? Right. So this is another interesting question because what was it? I don't know whether it was a year or two ago or something. I was in a, a forum and one of the consultants said, oh, no, we can just automate data governance. And I took a pause about that long, maybe longer, like what? Automate data governance. And the thing is, sure, automation is a thing. And certainly there are areas where data governance can be automated, but it doesn't mean data governance as a whole can be automated. So what kinds of things can be automated? The only things that it makes sense to be automated is where a process is very clearly and unambiguously defined within the organization and where all of the data relevant to that process exists and is in the requisite form or quality or structure, whatever it might be, for a rule, because really what it is, it's a business rule acting on something, on a process, on data, for that rule to execute. But there's some areas where the automation of data governance, yeah, not so much. That doesn't happen yet. So for one thing, think of some of your big data governance constructs. Who's my data owner? Who's my data steward? Which data manager is going to do what? The allocation of uh, responsibilities and accountabilities, the decision of uh, who should be consulted for a decision or who should be informed for a decision. No automation tool is going to do that. And the moment, and if, if I'm ever proved wrong, the moment all of these kinds of things can be automated, yeah, there's no role for humans. What are we going to do then? Because everything is just happening. But there's another reason why I don't believe that data, you know, that just to say, oh, we just automate data governance. And that is where it's because assumptions, there are usually a set of assumptions behind a business rule or a business process. And a, in general, those rules or processes are not going to know whether those assumptions are upheld at the time that uh, that process has been executed or that business rule has been executed. 
So a question is going to remain from an oversight perspective is, are the assumptions that I put in place as an organization before a business rule or a process, are they still valid or have they been violated? Because if they've been violated, I cannot execute against this business rule or this business process. Things are going to have changed. So, nope, cannot automate it fully. But there's more in the difference between responsibilities and accountabilities in governance. So while a process or a business rule can execute, that's the responsibility side of the question, that same business rule or process cannot be accountable to determine whether or not that execution has been done appropriately through the simple matter of the requirement that there's a segregation of duties between accountabilities and responsibilities. So a process can run, but there still needs to be another party that ensures that that process or business rule has been executed appropriately. For example, hey, are the assumptions still valid? So I cannot see yet, and I'm happy to be shown wrong, although then I'm really worried for, for what the role of humans are going forward, but no automation can fulfill the role of both responsibility and of accountability because then that machine has taken, there's no more segregation of duty. So that's a violation of governance. And I mean, there's more, but yeah, there is a place for governance, but its scope is probably tiny compared to really what they, the, the, the span of data governance within an organization, particularly with respect to roles, responsibilities, with respect to segregation of duties and respect to the fact that, like I said, processes and things uh, and business rules are defined, but there's a set of assumptions underlying them how valid are those assumptions at the time of execution? Your basic automation engine is probably not going to have that logic, if it is logic, to be able to detect these things. Understood, understood. So one of my last questions will be, really, you, you talked about automation, and I, and I would say it's it's somewhere on that continuum, right, of data governance and data management, certainly. Are there any uh, specific subtleties uh, that are worth noting with regard to sustainable data governance and data management practice that you'd like to, uh, our listeners to know about before we close up for today? For sure. Maybe the first one, and maybe let's speak about a couple of examples that are not in the article, is boiling the ocean. You know, it's not a matter of oh, the organization decides, and there's a challenge with that all by itself, but the organization decides, yeah, we need data governance in place. Off you go, create a data governance framework, create all the mechanisms, do everything. Boiling the ocean is not going to be successful. You will be sitting and building processes and creating frameworks for the rest of time because the scope is huge. Rather start with what is the organization's problem statement? What is the organization aspiring to achieve? And rather focus your data governance program or framework on what the organization is going to achieve rather than saying, I'm going to do everything. So that's probably one of the most important ones is focusing it on either problem statements the organization has that it's desperate to solve or on how that program is going to help the organization achieve a strategic objective. Another one is just like many disciplines, data governance is a specialized area. It's about responsibilities, about accountabilities, the kinds of things we we're speaking about. It's about a whole lot of sub-disciplines, whether it's privacy, whether it's security, content management, all sorts of things. But one of the big things is that language is jargon. So when you go out into the business and try and say, ah, Lisa, I see that you're trying to figure out how to um, store 
you know, all of your videos and photographs and articles in a way that you can find them and reference them and use it as, a, as an information source. And I start using jargon such as taxonomies and ontologies and you need this and you need that and SharePoint this and whatever else. You're going to go, oh, gosh, here comes the IT guy again. Rather, one of the biggest nuances in trying to get the buy-in and the common understanding within the business is to use metaphors as part of your, your language. And for a particular client right now, I've created two metaphors. The one metaphor I've created is for data architecture, where I'm speaking about cities and suburbs and neighborhoods and highways and roads, and all of these come together in a readily digestible form of information for many of the different dimensions of data architecture. In data quality, for argument's sake, as a metaphor, I might use, for example, the expiry date on a bottle of milk. Like, yeah, there's the expiry date, that's quality. So now I know, oh gosh, this milk has expired. Oh, this milk isn't good for, you know, isn't fit for purpose. And, you know, if that was data, and if I had a sense of how old the data was, I could say, well, this data is not fit for purpose. Or if I'm talking about, you know, so many different things, if I'm talking about metadata, there's another jargon. What are you talking about? Metadata. But what I did is I took a, a label of a can of Heinz baked beans and I pointed to it and I said, here's the weight, you know, for example. So that's metadata. That's information about the baked beans inside the can. Here's something that says where it was made. Here's something that says what its ingredients are. So I might have only wanted a can of beans. And then I look and I say, oh, it's got sugar and it's got this hydrogenated protein and X and some other scary stuff. Whoa, that metadata is telling me I don't want to know what's in the can. I'm shifting that can apart. Sorry, maybe not Heinz. Heinz might be better qualities or maybe it's you know, not about a brand. But no, I don't want that brand of baked beans. Let me look for another one. Oh, this doesn't have any funny stuff in it. It looks like it's just beans and tomato sauce. Yep, this is the one I'm taking. So all of these things, it's about speaking about things in a language the organization understands. Steer away from jargon. Use the jargon within your technical teams. But as soon as you're engaging with business, if you're looking for buy-in, speak in a more commonly accessible language, turn things into metaphors, turn things in, this is like this, or that couldn't be considered as something akin to that. Don't come up there and start using jargon. You will lose your audience. You will not get buy-in. And that's one of the biggest things is, yeah, the whole, the whole thing you're trying to do this for is to ensure that the organization has traction. There's many more old school versus new school, relational databases versus, versus non-relational databases. There's centralization versus decentralization. Centralization is your monolithic architectures versus things like your data mesh and your data fabrics on the other side. There's also things such as in the old school, you'd create reports for your end users. In the new school, it's about end user empowerment and self-service. So lots of different things you need to think about that are subtleties. This is not, there's nothing textbook about data management. It is, there are so many subtleties, big thing. Take it carefully. Speak in the language that your business understands. Start with a goal in mind. What are you trying to solve for? And think about the direction this is going in. There's too much, in my observation, thinking about really old school approaches to data. They might work, but there's a lot better alternatives out there these days. It's worth taking a walk through some of the newer technologies that enable an organization to leverage the data that it has at its disposal. Guy, thank you so much for those parting tips. I'm sure our listeners will benefit from it greatly. And as much as I hate to end this conversation, it's all the time we have for today. Guy, I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thank you, everyone. Have a great evening. 
And for our listeners, if you are interested in reading Guy's full article, Beware the Traps of Data Governance and Data Management Practice, please click on the link in the description below. That's it for this episode. I'm Lisa Villanueva, and thanks everyone for tuning in.